that's going to influence the nature of that dynamic between them and in a negative way. We've had law enforcement types who have struggled with CIA's training because there's no badge. And the gun is only, God forbid, somebody's about to shoot at you if you even have one. It's not home turf. You can't just, you know, walk on off and say, hey, I'm Bureau or whatever like that. Bad things can happen to you. And your security is as much in that agent's hand as that agent security in your hand. So you better treat them with some respect and not just think of them as a disposable snitch. So our work is all about, you know, hiding. Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Doug London. Doug, thanks for doing this. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to be considered an innovator. <laughs> well, I am a big fan of your new book. For everybody who doesn't know about it, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. I literally just finished it yesterday and have already bought two hard copies to give away. So congrats on writing a great book. Thanks. That, that's awesome. They make great stocking stuffers as well at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I love it. In fact, get people four. You may as like, you know, one is never enough. So can you give people a quick maybe overview on your background? And then I have about 100 questions for you. Oh, cool. Well, I grew up in New York City, in the Bronx, actually. And uh, probably could have been a ne'er-do-well, like a lot of the folks with whom I grew up, who kind of split between either becoming cops or or doing the other end of things. But I was lucky and worked hard and I got spotted actually by CIA, which was really fortunate for me because I had actually aspired to be a diplomat, going to the foreign service. And I was lucky enough to have this wonderful professor who was an adjunct, kind of like what I do these days at Georgetown. And he'd been even, he'd been an ambassador, he'd been ambassador at a couple of posts. And he would teach like a course a semester, and I found him just riveting. But he was actually in touch with the agency, as, as some folks like that are, because he would pass on, you know, the names of other foreign diplomats he would meet, perhaps, you know, Russians and Chinese and the like, because his last post was at the United Nations. And I think he saw in me uh, not quite the medal for a polished diplomat, but more like the second story kind of thing, which is kind of the turn of the phrase at the day for someone who perhaps has different skills and maybe a somewhat different moral compass, God forbid. So uh, out of nowhere, I get a call from a federal government official. Like, what do you make of that? U.S. federal government official. And it was the agency. And after a, a series of interviews and the process, which, you know, we could talk about if your listeners are interested, they hired me and I did that for 34 plus years. I was a case officer in CIA's clandestine service. I served more than half that time overseas. I'm not permitted to say the exact countries I served in. I could talk about countries I visited, and there are sometimes overlap. But I served at nine different overseas posts, mostly in the Middle East, South Asia, Africa, former Soviet republics, and um, what I'm allowed to say, conflict zones in the Middle East and South Asia. And I retired in 2019. And since that time, I've been getting into trouble by writing things. And I teach at Georgetown, who were silly enough to hire me as an adjunct. They would never have admitted me as a student. And I teach courses on intelligence studies, which are just great fun uh, to graduate students. That's exciting. And when did the book come out? The hardcover came out in September of 2021. And uh, luckily, there was enough interest that the paperback is coming out on September 6th. So I'm really excited about that and really gratified at the amount of interest I've had. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm a real audiobook nerd. Our listeners know that all I do is talk about books, Warren Buffett and special ops and the Intel community, <laughs> which is funny for a business show. 
But I consume a lot of audiobooks, and you guys did a good job. A lot of times, the narrator is makes it makes it tough to enjoy the book. And congrats on that one. The narrator was great. The only problem is he was so great. People are disappointed when they actually speak to me and hear my voice because <laughs> they keep thinking they're going to hear his voice. So I, I try to manage expectations. Well, I think it's great. So let, let's do this. I feel like there's so many questions I have, but I think what I really appreciated having consumed a lot of nonfiction in the intelligence community, I feel like you gave such a flavor for what it's like to be a recruiter and and understanding the nuances of source operations and and this concept of how much better it is to persuade than force. Why don't we start with that? Can we talk about your beliefs on persuasion over blackmail or force? Well, I mean, um, fortunately, even the agency and its teaching of case officers, and I did that for a while, I taught at what we call the farm, which everybody can see online, but I'm not to say where it is. But I taught there, and that's actually part of the curriculum, that coercion uh, is just not effective. And it's it's not just because, oh, we're you know, ethical and take the high ground. I like to think we are to some extent, but it, it just doesn't work. In fact, it's a model more used by autocratic states. Russia, Chinese, Iran, they tend to use it because in some ways it's easy or easier, but has short-lived gains. If you're recruiting someone to be a spy, you're recruiting someone who's in a position of knowledge. And if you're spying on your adversaries, that's not necessarily, you know, the, the, the purest of souls. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there, there are folks who've had revelations and, and, and are actually patriots and want to do something from the inside to change their system. And it's, it's gratifying to deal with those. But if, if you're recruiting a terrorist, as, as I had some experience doing as well, these aren't people I want to coerce and then meet in some back alley in Beirut or Karachi where my life is also in their hands. I need to have some reliability in them that we're partners, we're partners in all this together. And it really is very much a partnership when you recruit a spy or you know an agent, as we call them in the agency. You're collaborating conspiratorially with risk to both, the greater risk more often being to the agent, right? In, in a lot of places, I might get roughed up, but I'll probably make it home, not necessarily in conflict zones or some other interesting places, but more or less. But agents, unfortunately, if they're caught, it's it could be very well their lives, the lives of their families, and the future of their families. There's another component to that as well. If you think about what we're doing, we're collecting intelligence not just for the fun of it, and, and it's fun, I'll tell you, espionage is, is, is thrilling, but we're doing it for the purpose of informing decision-making, important decisions, life and death decisions that leaders have to make in, in government and in the military and such like that. So you have to stand behind the intelligence you're collecting. I don't know how you stand behind intelligence you're getting from someone who you've blackmailed to provide it, how you can offer any sense of confidence in this information is accurate, it's reliable, it's, it's to the best of the agent's ability to provide. So the partnership is necessary for a process, and it is a process to actually validate, vet the agent, because... You don't recruit somebody and all of a sudden, oh, Mike, we've got gold. You let the consumer know that an agent's new. An agent might at this point be just speaking out of school or trying to influence until you have an opportunity over time to continually get deeper, deeper into the agent and their motivations and what their life is like. It's, it's, a, it's a dynamic that's beyond friendship or beyond 
troops in a military unit. It's a depth of intimacy that's required to secure their trust so you keep them out of harm's way, keep yourself out of harm's way, but also stand behind your agent's reporting. So it's it's a it's a great dynamic of true human relations and in some ways the most intimate relationship that agent will have. And I say that in all in all candor because the case officer is is non-judgmental. You know, I, I handled folks of all walks of life. Like I said, some were heroes and patriots, some were not. Uh, a number of them had blood on their hands. Some of them had American blood on their hands. So you're not telling your agent, oh, you're the best thing since sliced bread. Everything you've done is great, but you're also not judging them. And they also know that you are going to keep their secrets. They can tell you anything from the depth of their heart and soul, black, white, or otherwise, because you will keep that. It's a little bit like a confessional, but it's an important component for their safety and for you really to gauge the intelligence that you're getting from them. So it's a, it's a fascinating walk of life. Yeah. Maybe to start with, before I launch into a bunch more questions, can you help people understand some of the vocabulary because it's not the same as Hollywood? Can you talk about the difference between, or like the impreciseness of the word spy and talk about case officer and source and agent and, and just maybe some of the different vocabulary? So for the CIA anyway, and for intelligence services that collect intelligence in human, human intelligence, the case officer is the official or non-official because you could also operate under a non-official cover, but you're the U.S. government person who's recruiting an agent, handling the agent. You're the one who securely communicates with the agent. And we call them an agent for CIA because, you know, like FBI and diplomatic security, they're agents, right? They're special agents. But we consider our sources, it's probably a fair term, to be our agents or our assets. We use that word interchangeably. And the handler, the collector, is called the case officer. And the case officer is one occupation in the clandestine service that includes targeters, staff operations officers who are essentially program managers, paramilitary uh, operations officers, collection management officers. But the individual who goes out Recruits the agent, handles the agent, lurks in the back streets. That's that's a case officer. If you go on the CIA website, these days you'll see it referred to as operations officer. But inside, it's really case officer. The term spy is a little more subjective, okay? Because the agent is, in fact, the spy within his or her organization. And I say organization uh, consciously because we're collecting secrets not just from armies and governments, but from transnational groups where, you know, targeting terrorist organizations, criminal syndicates, drug organizations, and cartels. Sometimes that organization is family, their actual family, and they derive their access not because they're in an official position, like they're a colonel in the army or they're a, a counterintelligence officer, but they're cousin to a terrorist or a, a, a drug cartel ringleader. So we're spying on the organization. The agent is the spy within the organization. But most case officers, at least of, of my long and the tooth nature, consider ourselves spies because we're spy handlers and ourselves spies in managing the clandestine art of espionage, which is eluding those who would try to catch you, namely, you know, our counterintelligence adversaries or whatever other assortment of uh, bad guy, if you would, 
So I've always considered myself the spy and I spy uh, to gain secrets for the United States. That's great. Um, or at least I did. <laughs> so I want to bring up something you talked about, this idea of, you know, that it's not just a game, that your physical harm is likely on the table and, and the possible death of, of your agent and their family is potential depending on the country. Can you talk about your mindset? I think there's so many of us that have they've watched a movie or read a fiction book or something and there's this fantasized version of it and then there's the real life like, oh no, I'm really about to do this. Like, you know, I just went skydiving for the first time for my birthday and on the way up the plane, I had to, I wasn't very nervous. I was with a guy who'd done like 1,800 tandem jumps. He has the European world record for the highest skydive in history and stuff. But on the, on the way up, I thought, I might die. Like, we may not, we may not make this. Pr pretty likely we will. But, you know, just like a quick reflection on life and, and just being honest about what we're about to do, you know? And that is, has much more certainty than the situation you're going into with, with all the years of practice and the safety and the parachutes and the everything. Can you talk about your mindset of maybe what you told yourself or, or your philosophy of how you kind of get in the right headspace when you are, you know, ready to head out in the middle of the night and, and you don't control the future? Anything could happen. Yeah, it's, it's a weird confluence of traits and philosophies and thoughts, you know, because we're not Jason Bourne. Uh, Jason Bourne wouldn't be effective because an effective spy is average, you know, boring under the radar. The most important element you can bring to the table is simply not being noticed, right? So you've got, you know, whatever charm and personality and interpersonal skills you need, which have to be um, enhanced in order to engage your agent because recruiting actually never stops. It's not just persuading someone to undertake this mission, but keeping them motivated, uh, keeping them close enough to you that they're trusting you with things that happen in their life because life happens, life changes. And the motivations that you might have manipulated, and that's what we do, we manipulate people's needs and interests, and we try to provide solutions for those needs and their greatest problems. They change. Problems come and go, or they change, or people are different walks of life. So it's, it's this funny kind of juxtaposition of being able to turn it on whenever you need to, but also being able to tune it down so that you don't stand out and get someone's attention. So we're not like special operators where we're, you know, trained in all these various skills. I've been trained to jump out of airplanes or pull out of helicopters, carry all sorts of arms, but not to get in a fight, but to get out of a fight, right? So I'm looking to avoid conflict. I'm looking to avoid the bar brawl, but God forbid something happens, I need to at least get off the X. And that's what we're trained to do. You know, special operators, people in the armed forces, they're running to the sounds of gunfire. And, and they're there to do that. We're running away from the sounds of gunfire because our secrets are worth so much more. And that's what we're trying to protect. And, you know, one of me, you know, going into battle is really not what you want. I, I, you know, I was in the Marines and the Marine Corps and I both realized it wasn't a great fit because I was more of a smart. Animal. So I, you know, I, I luckily found my way to CIA. But at the same point, you very seriously understand the risks because, in, a, in some ways, it's like a game and it's it's fun and it's play, but with real serious consequences and the consequences being the life of your agent, which we will put our lives in harm's way to protect first and, and foremost. So 
the mindset also being different than the military, when a case officer's on the street, more more or less, more likely, he or she's on their own. There's no cavalry, there's no air support, there's no calling in help. It's your wits that have to navigate whatever might come your way. And and the personality traits we look for, in fact, in someone who does that job is their ability to adjust to dynamic circumstances. I know those are canned terms, but they're legit, right? Because things happen. As a case officer, you plan for every variable you can consider. You're not just manipulating people, the agent, to commit to this relationship. You're manipulating the environment to know what routes and streets and ways to get there so you're not followed, or if you are, you identify it. You're manipulating the local counterintelligence service so that you're you're hidden in the shadows. You don't stand out to them and they see some reason for anything you're doing that seems boring or legitimate, nothing of concern to them. And you think of any and everything that could possibly go wrong, but then there's always some things that go wrong that you can't plan for. You know, you show up and, and you're about to meet your agent and their, their, their cousin Mohammed is just coming out of a store across the street. And Cousin Mohammed works for the counterintelligence service. Things like that. What do you do, right? You get in a car accident. You have an agent that has a heart attack in the middle of a clandestine meeting. What do you do if you're agent? You just, you know, you don't just leave him there to, to die on the street. So these are all things you can't plan for everything. And you know there's a component of risk to everything you do. And we talk a lot in the clandestine service about cover. And there's cover for status and cover for action. And real quickly, my, my best explanation is think of the Grinch who stole Christmas. I actually taught it this way at the farm. So if, if you saw the Grinch who stole Christmas, you remember the Grinch goes to steal the tree and the packages and stuff, and he's dressed like Santa Claus, right? That's his cover for status. He's Santa Claus, and everybody sees him as Santa Claus. My cover for status might have been a U.S. official. It might have been a business person right? Depending on what I was doing, might've been a student. That's who I was. That's what I was doing there in country. But when he was actually stealing a tree and little Cindy Lou Who, who's no more than two goes, what are you doing, Santa? He goes, oh my, your light's broken on the tree. I've got to take it back to my shop. That was his cover for action. That was his reason for actually taking the tree. So Santa suit to be there, the tree's broken light cover for action. You're thinking of all the variables because that cover has to last forever. A week from now, a month from now, a year from now, they could be investigating Canvas the neighbors, the shop owners go, did you see a picture of this guy and, and this girl or whatever? Your cover has to endure. And it's got to be the same if you're actually called on the carpet. Now, ideally, it's a meeting that was never seen. We call it clandestine for a reason. Clandestinity means concealed, right? Not hiding in plain sight like Jason Bourne likes to do, which I always find amusing, standing like a train station where there's like, 500 sets of eyes and cameras, but like actually being black is what we call it, where no one sees you. So you try to screen your contact, but things happen. You miss the camera, you miss the neighbor, whatever. And that's where that's where our cover comes in. So all of those points in the engagement of your agent has a fiscal risk. You could be ambushed by, you know, counterintelligence folks or terrorists. And I've had both occur, right? So you know, what do you do under those circumstances to protect your agent and I ideally protect yourself? So you, you take a swagger. So the swagger at least may be similar to the special ops folks because you have to believe you own the street, you own the night. And there's this feeling that I, I, I can't really describe 
when you know you're black and you've been out there and you've run your surveillance detection route, which is what we call the path you take to meet with your, your clandestine agent. And I can't get into details, but it's what you do over a period of time and, and distance and whatever to identify possible surveillance before you actually go into your zone to, to meet your agent. And when you feel you're black, and it's not feel, you know you're black, there's this amazing feeling that you're off the grid. You own this place. You own them. You own the bad guys. So, you know, swagger, confidence, and an appropriate sense of fear and respect kind of all come together. Can I ask you about this confidence thing for a second? When you sure. when you talk about that, it reminds me, I've got like, you know, being an entrepreneur has a certain amount of uncertainty as well, right? And so one of my ways to like overcome anxiety is try to like emotionally hijack myself, whether it's music I listen to or, <laughs> you know, I've got these YouTube videos, you know, like it might be funny videos or it might be like motivational videos. And so I'll listen to like, you know, I've got this whole playlist of like, Ramon Decker is one of the best Muay Thai fighters and, you know, amazing snowboarders and, and Michael Jordan and all these kind of guys, right? And I just have this, like, playlist. You know, the, the, the recruiting video for, for the unit is that's, you know, the old leaked one, stuff like this. It's online, okay? And there's this Michael Jordan video where apparently a lot of interviewers were obsessed with asking what he was afraid of because it's, like, clip after clip of, clip of people saying, do you have fear? What are you scared of? What are you most scared of? And all this stuff. And his answer was pretty standard where he said, of course I'm anxious, I don't control the future. Like this is paraphrasing. Like, I don't control the future, I'm, I'm anxious, I want to win. But he says, I'm not really fearful because I knew I put in the work. And so I didn't have to be fearful because I had the skills, because I'd put in the work. Is, is owning the street related to that in any way? Or how much of preparation helps you get out there and own the street as you said it? Well, there's, there's all sorts of prep, right? There's, you know, whenever you, whenever you meet an agent, You've gone through everything that has already happened, all the dynamics, everything's on the street, capabilities of your adversaries. Are there any changes? Because, you know, agents also go bad. They get turned, they get caught, right? So you're looking for any anomalies there as well. So there's sort of like the, the long-term preparation. You know, I've got a meeting coming up this month, two weeks from now, a week from now, where you're doing all your prep because, you know, you don't have hours. Clandestine meetings particularly with very sensitive agents when are, that are face-to-face, -face, are incredibly short. And there's a lot of business to conduct in a real short period of time. And a lot of that business is just gauging your agent. Is he or she okay? You know, are they acting different? What's going on in their life? So it's not all business. You don't treat them like they're a, like they're a customer or, or a business client or, God forbid, an employee. You treat them like a partner, like a true friend. So you're going through all that and you're reviewing, you know, what's going on with their family and, you know, oh, his kid was had a cold a couple of weeks ago. And you're also re-familiarizing yourself with the requirements because, you know, as fun as spying is, we do it for a reason. We have specific questions that the intel community, that leaders need to know. You know, what are Russian hypersonic missile capabilities? You know, what is Al-Qaeda planning to do next? Who's the new chief of ops? So you're trying to get to all this business, including communications, right? Because don't forget, you have to go over, here's how we're meeting next time. Here's what we're doing next time. Here's new questions. Here's old questions. So it's a ton of prep. But then you're also doing the psychological prep, right? So 
I've been putting everything together, right, for whatever period of time leading up to the meeting that I'm prepared. I know my questions. I don't need to write anything down because if you write things down, you get caught and you got something to explain. I might write down some keywords that mean something to, and I might write down keywords of their answers. I don't record the meeting because if I get pinched, so does recording, right? But I'm also doing a pregame. So when I'm, before I go out to a meeting, you know, I usually give myself time to think it through, kind of get into character because, you know, case officers have to be a chameleon and sometimes they're adopting personas. Sometimes they're adopting an alias. I might be meeting this person as someone else in an alias. I need to be that person and either, you know, maybe I'm bookworm Doug or, or, you know, former special forces Doug or whatever it is I made up. I've played many characters on TV. So I'm getting into all that as well. And I, and I'm kind of pumping myself up as well. I'm, I'm visualizing my surveillance detection route because I can't have like directions, right? I can't be driving or walking and looking at something. I have to know exactly where I'm turning, what I'm doing, how long it gets from point A to point B because everything's precise. I can't have the agent waiting for me. I can't be waiting for the agent. There's a window we talk about. So I'm going all this in my head, but I'm probably listening to like tunes like Top Gun or something like that right? To also kind of get in to the feeling, to kind of get myself where I need to be so that when I do walk out that door, I'm in charge. I'm anxious, like you're, you're the interview, Michael Jordan, that's, that's really well put. I'm always anxious because I can't control everything, but I am ready. I am completely prepared. I own my streets. I own my territory. I own this operation and, and I'm ready for anything to come at me. And and with all that cockiness and confidence, I'm also trying to be as boring and small and little as I can. So when I'm riding that bus, that train, whatever like that, nobody notices me. Yeah, it makes me think that that movie, The Gray Man, is not a very great, a very great application of somebody no. being a gray man. Okay, so no, he's so not ma- very gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about this idea of the psychology. You know. Before the show, we were talking about how at our charity, Child Rescue Association, by the way, everybody go check out our website, childrescueassociation.org. You know, we're, we're getting ready right now. We've got a former case officer from the intelligence community who's going to be teaching law enforcement officers how to recruit, you know, high level source inside one of the criminal organizations that's trafficking children. You know, somebody we can leave in place and can inform for years instead of just a bust, right? And part of it, as I've thought about, because I'll be assisting with it and, and trying to make sure these classes go well and stuff and, and making sure that he has everything he needs and the officers have what they need and that kind of stuff, my, my, my team helping out with that, right? And it makes me think about one of, our, one of our team members who went on an undercover mission down in Central America working with the intelligence division of a police force down there who actually on the mission wore their own balaclavas so because there's so much corruption in the police force. They didn't want the other cops to know who they were. Okay. But this individual talked about this idea of, you know, they it was their first one. So they were with other folks who were running the op, but this was their first one ever going. And, you know, so these four, two sets of two traffickers brought in eight different kids, and then the cops came in to, to do the bust, and we were able to, you know, facilitate the, the police rescuing these eight girls and, and getting those traffickers as well as another couple of associates who weren't there. And it was in the newspapers and great success story. But this team member of ours talks about this idea of like how the, they did two operations on that trip. And the first one, they, they talked about this idea of like 
almost like being outside themselves and like almost feeling like too wooden and like not like there was like an anxiety or like a concern of like not being able to get into character and like and reflecting on it feeling like man I almost jeopardized all of us because I wasn't playing the part well enough and I was I was so involved in the whole operation that I wasn't able to be myself kind of an idea and then when they they talked about like the reflection on that and how the second operation they did that week they were able to to really kind of go like they they describe it almost like a method actor where they they thought about a cover that was very close to who they really were and they were able to really spend some time imagining well what would it be like if I was you know if I was this kind of person I was in this country for this reason and we were going out to 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 party and and that second time it went completely different because they were actually able to be the character instead of tell themselves what they should be so it's kind of a convoluted story but my question for you is for somebody who in a situation like that who who on their first time out recognizes man I am not good enough at this and I need to really be my cover what kind of advice do you have for someone like that of of really living the part well you know you made some good points in in telling your story actually so if you're recruiting somebody fundamentally it's not necessarily in their best interest right simply just getting caught for what they're doing even if they're doing something noble could cause them great deal of pain and suffering so it's all about trust it's all about sincerity and people see things that are insincere they they really do you don't have to be something so different than yourself uh, and if you do if you stretch that far you're probably going to undermine your effort because you'll come across as insincere you know like the 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 used car sales person does not do well at this business cuz it's not about you the case officer it's all about the agent everything's about the agent and everything is about securing their trust and and you're trying to either identify or dare i say manipulate some sort of life-changing event something that's gone on in their life that will turn the difference between them not liking what they do and wishing they could do something and actually crossing the rubicon and doing that so to gain their trust you have to think you have to try to size them up as best you can uh, indirectly if there's any possibility at first you know if there's any materials or or background or people have told you things about this person or just based on your your instincts and your your efforts to try to reflect them like a mirror in a sense without being too too obvious to try to pull out of them who they are and then align to your point true elements of yourself you can't invent really things about yourself and pull it off so you know there's a lot of aspects to every one of us people are very deep and complex which is what i i love about them and which is what i enjoy about the art of intelligence right because we are so complex we're not all swagger we're also vulnerabilities where where we're not all intellect we're a bit of an adventurer some people more less than others right to be fair so you have to look at yourself and see what best aligns with this person and then pull true parts of yourself so you know you you skydive well, i speak for myself right i was scared to death but i had enough of adventurous spirit that darn i was doing it and i wanted to be first out of the plane mostly because i wanted to get it over with but that's that weird combination of terror 
and thrill that goes together. So there's different pieces of you. I, I was not the, the best student. I'm not the you know, most intellectual person, but I'm clever enough and I have fascination for things. So I could sort of go a mile wide and an inch deep sincerely because I do have an interest in a lot of subjects. I'm just not smart enough to be expert on, on, on them, but I don't have to be because my job is just to show I have interest in something that the other person has interest in. So you can't just sort of be this total kind of cartoon character or something else that you're not. You have to find within yourself, what is my persona tonight? Even if you're going yourself, like I, I would tell students, if you're going to like an event, we call it a bump, right? A bump could be where, you know, I'm looking for you. I know you're going to be at this party or whatever. So I'm already thought about what I'm going to do when I bump into you and how I'm going to bump into you. Or I'm going to a conference of, you know, telecom people in, in Russia or whatever. And I, I want to meet somebody with access to a certain business. So I don't know exactly who I'm meeting. I'm looking for an engineer or whatever like that. I need to know, okay, I'm going as me, you know, Doug London from whatever cover I'm using, you know, an official U.S. government platform, a non-official commercial thing. But who is Doug tonight? You know, am I more intellectual, less intellectual, more funny guy, more serious? And I, I am that persona, all of which are parts of me. They're all genuine because I have all that in me. And that's what I'm showing tonight when I meet the engineer. So I'm not going to pretend to know enough about an engineer's work to really talk that business, but I need to know enough to show I care about it for whatever reason I do, that I've looked into it and I'm sincerely interested and probably impressed by those who can do it. And that's, those are the bits and pieces. So, you know, folks can do that. Please. No, no, finish your sentence, but I'm excited. It's all different components of, of who we are, which is where, to your earlier point, you know, you can get lost sometimes in this reality. Like, what is the reality? Because you really are all the different little pieces that you use because you can't pull it off if it's not sincere. But what's the real you? And yeah, I, I think there are moments that a case officer kind of goes through that. Well, and let's talk about this for a bit. And, and you know, I, I found it fascinating in the book where you talk about this idea of like, okay, the, the bump goes well, but now, now I need them to want to see me again. And, you know, right. ideally somewhere that's, you know, screened from view in the black or, you know, like a dark alley at two in the morning is going to have a hard time having, you know, cover for action. What are the, what are the two of you doing in the dark alley at two in the morning, right? Can, exactly. you, can you explain to people what you talk about in the book of this, you know, like, okay, the bump went well, but now what? Right. So the ultimate aim of an operation is to recruit this person as a clandestine agent where they are secretly cooperating with you on behalf of the U.S. government to provide secrets about their job, organization, whatever, right? So to protect them in the relationship, you need to move it out of the public eye, if it's at all in the public eye from the onset, as soon as you can. You need to move it in a more discreet fashion before they're recruited, essentially. There has to be some reason why, you know, oh, I can't come to your embassy, Boris. You know, I mean, because, you know, you want to find some reason to be discreet. So you're looking to infuse a bit of a conspiratorial nature to the relationship, but the conspiracy has nothing to do with espionage. It's a bit of a bait and switch. And that has to do with also 
understanding and assessing. You're assessing the target, if you would, right? What are they interested? What do they care about? So, you know, Boris has a fascination with stamps and has always wanted this, this odd Brazilian, you know, 10 lira stamp. And you kind of know about Boris's fascination. So you kind of find a way that it organically comes up. And you talk about this catalog or magazine or whatever like that. And Boris expresses interest. And you're like, I could, I could give you that, that magazine. But you also know Boris probably doesn't want to be seen meeting a Westerner. And if you've met Boris at an embassy official. So you're being understanding for Boris. You're going, listen, why don't we just grab a quick cup of coffee? It's not exactly clandestine. But you're not coming to the embassy. You're not calling him at, you know, at his or her place of work. You're just moving it discreetly out of the way. And you're finding the bait and switch. Boris is interested in you because you can offer something to him. In this case, it's the stamps. But that's not what you want Boris for. But you then have to understand what are Boris's bigger needs that will make it worth spying for you. Is it patriotism? And I do mean that sincerely because... Boris doesn't like Putin and thinks Putin is is poison for for Russia. Is it Boris got screwed over and wants to get back at the system or get back at his boss or whatever like that? So you find that and then over time you're slightly peeling the onion to move from stamps or fine wines or or you know archery to espionage. Yeah. So this idea of, of getting that second meaning out of the public eye, how much have you thought of what that's probably going to be before the bump versus how much are, is that you know the kinds of things and based on the conversation, you're inventing it on the spot? If it's a bump and it's brand new, you can't tell this person where to go. You can try to lead them, right? So you probably have a bunch of options and you've done your homework and you've done your research and you've gone from, you know, you know, not so good, bad to worse in terms of what's the level of threat that you could, that's acceptable, right? So it's probably going to be a public venue, might very well be a public venue because why, you know, you can explain, oh, I need to meet you in a back alley at, you know, two in the morning. No, obviously not. But you can come up with reasons for, you know, why you, you want to avoid great attention because, hey, listen, I'm going to be taking time off from the embassy and or from my job. And I told him I got a doctor's appointment, so I'd rather not bump into one of my colleagues or or for his sake, the same thing. So you're doing these kind of like little bits of transition. So you've got to be prepared because I can meet you and, and things will be working, right? I meet you at this this conference and it's like, you know, oh, Jess, your work, that's inspiring. I'm really interested in doing so, but I don't know that my job would be too thrilled about it or or, or that your job would be too thrilled about meeting me because of whatever I am and whatever persona I'm using. So I have to have a series of, of venues, you know, locations, to run by you that hopefully will appeal to you, but also meet my security standards. But you may not bite at the first one. So I've got to have backups. I'm going to try to control the, 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 the event and try to control where we go, but I don't want you to realize that I'm doing that. I want you to think that this is best for you. These are your ideas. This is your interest so that you don't see that I'm actually trying to manipulate. So it's a lot of homework and prep that goes into it. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about this in terms of the class that, that our charity is going to provide for law enforcement, right? And so, by the way, anybody who wants to support that, uh, on childrescue.org, there's a whole thing. We've got a tactical fundraiser where if you donate 200 bucks, you can come to a half-day class with a green beret and 
there's some fun stuff, everybody. But thinking specifically about some of the things you said today and some of the things in the book, I really want to talk about these security concerns of like, okay, hey, you know, you've got the SDR and you've got the, you know, this this meeting, the second venue you talked about, where we probably need screening, so we're not being seen by everyone and or the cameras even there and. What if I am ambushed, like you said? What's my what's my escape and evasion? You know, what's my plan from here? And the all these different elements, and maybe it needs to be short. And you know, in the book, you talk about the mad minute. What are we doing here together? You know, and these kind of things. Maybe we can break down a couple of those things. So, like, you know, you read in all the fiction books, and you see in the movies, and then the nonfiction books, people talk about SDRs. And and for anybody who isn't familiar with the detection route, surveillance detection route, why is it that that you want to make these major turns? Like like. What, like, why do people, somebody who isn't familiar with that, like, and, and they hear, you know, there's, they're reading about somebody's SDR in a Jason Bourne fiction book, and he's like, oh, he took this corner so he could spot that choke point or whatever. Can you, why is that so important to somebody before they, before they get on the X, as you call it? So in, in most events, let's say for me, right? So I, I'm, I'm CIA, so I'm operating overseas. As, as well as I can know that turf or that environment, a professional surveillance team is going to know it better than me. So, you know, the Russians or the Chinese or whoever's following me around in China or Russia or wherever, that's all they do. They grew up there. They know, they know those routes. They know these streets. They know everything about it. They just don't know where I'm going to go before I do. So my advantage is I am manipulating the environment, which they know even better than me. They know this street. They know that avenue. They know where it intersects but they don't know where I'm going to make this turn or that turn. So when I'm trying to detect surveillance, I can't let it look like I'm trying to detect surveillance because as soon as I do that, they know I'm doing something operational. It has to look to them like it's boring. Should they be following me? That it makes sense. It fits in my pattern of life. We could talk about patterns of life that you deliberately establish by what you do every day. Spying's 24-7. You don't like go and call into the surveillance people and go, hey, I'm not working today. I got my kid's birthday party to go to. Everything you do every day is factored in, particularly nowadays with artificial intelligence and ubiquitous technical surveillance with cameras and tracking and all this kind of stuff. So everything you're doing is to deliberately manipulate the profile they see you already having, the, the environment that you're working so I can't like be looking over my shoulder and stuff like that because that's going to stand out. It has to look like I'm going to do my errands. I'm taking my kid to his or her soccer game. I'm taking the dog for grooming. It's I'm running whatever errands I'm doing and that I'm doing nothing funny. I'm not speeding. I'm not ducking. You know, I'm not like hiding and running out and popping out because once I do that, then instead of having five people, I'll have 20 people follow me in helicopters and drones, and they'll know I'm up to no good. So you're deliberately manipulating the environment to know, you know, at this intersection, it, when I make this left turn, I'm going to have a great field of view that's going to be very natural that will look two blocks back. When I'm walking down this street, I get this great look because there's nowhere to hide if they're paralleling me. Things like that, you've, you've cased. That's why we talk about casing. And you've cased this out. You don't just do it on the fly. Everything's planned. And really, the art of a surveillance detection route is the planning even more than the execution because you succeed based on where you've already predetermined you're going to get your best opportunities because you're going to collapse the surveillance at certain points. You know they're going to have to draw in on you here. 
but you also know there's an advantage to see this place. It's all very well thought out over extensive periods of time. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about this idea of, of having been ambushed and that there's always the possibility of being ambushed, right? Can you talk about, you know, for people who don't understand why that might need, you know, why might a meeting might need to take place so fast? Like, you know, this, this idea of the X of like, you've come this way, your agent came this way, you meet at this one spot, you're barely overlapping. Can you, can you talk about like, you know, I, I'm sure people can guess, but can you talk more about like how important, you know, like you talked about in the book, you talked about the mad minute and that, hey, maybe this meeting isn't going to take very long. Can you talk about that? So if you're meeting your agent face to face, you're trying to minimize the time that are exposed. And their greatest danger is when you're together or at any point your roots overlap, which is to your point, you're trying to approach a site if you're meeting at a you know site on foot or by car or whatever from two directions and proceed in two different directions so that you're not overlapping and you're not kind of turning back on on maybe the surveillance that that's behind you so you need to find out you've planned for how long your meeting's going to be based on precedent with this agent and and sometimes you know it's aligned in fact it's always aligned to the agent's lifestyle so you may have a very sensitive agent. I've had agents that could only get away from their family for like one hour. They couldn't explain or their job because they were on call. So they couldn't be gone for any more than an hour or whatever it was. So that includes them getting to you and leaving you. So now you're thinking, okay, how much time do I actually have for a meeting? So without getting into details of like the math, you know, meetings are tailored to your agent's availability. So you may be out there for hours or days to get to your meeting. Your agent may only have, I'm just artificially using it, an hour to get from home to meeting to back with, without you know, doing anything funny that looks suspicious and everything that they could explain. So you've done all this planning, you've planned for a certain length of time, but let's say you get to the meeting. The first question you ask about is obviously their security. You know, Is everything okay? And wouldn't you do that if you were just meeting me for lunch? You and I just got together. You'd probably say, hey, you know, how is traffic? Is everything okay? It's a very human thing to do. So you don't do it like it's a checklist and, and you're a robot. <clears throat> okay, how's your security? It's like, hey, how you doing? Any problems getting here? How's life at home? Yada, yada. But then you need to know how much time they have. Because if you start getting into the meeting and you're talking and talking and they're answering questions and whatever like that, and all of a sudden they go, got to run. <laughs> you know, you haven't had time to factor in all the business. So, you know, the second question you always ask is, how much time do you have? It could be, I got 30 minutes, I got 50 minutes, I've only got five minutes. And you then collapse down everything you need to do in the amount of time you have. I mean, that one is fascinating to me because I, I feel like there's so many parallels of, you know, either dating or sales or building this kind of a relationship. I mean, five minutes, that is incredible to like, you know, Hey, what's our cover for, you know, like you've got your, what's our cover for, for action, for being here to get, you know, you got your mad minute and you, now you got four more minutes. Like, how do you, how do yeah. you possibly compress into four minutes? Well, it helps. I'm from New York city. So I talk really fast, <laughs> but you got to remember, uh, you're generally doing this in a foreign language. So I'm doing this in Russian or Arabic or French and my colleagues are doing it in all sorts of languages. And, and sometimes my three languages are an in-between language. So I'm talking to, you know, 
I don't know, I'm talking to a Russian in Arabic. Well, a Russian I would know, but a Chinese in Arabic because they know Arabic, but they don't know English. So yeah, you're doing all this then, but you've thought it through because you've given yourself all the different permutations of how the meaning can go. So one, you know, among the big differences and, and, and we find, because when I was at the farm, we trained certain law enforcement people. We trained certain people from the FBI. It's really getting them out of their domestic mindset because as law enforcement, they're used to the, having their gun in their bench. You know, they don't got to worry. They could be seen. What's the big deal? Forget about it, right? And, and often, not often, that's really unfair. But at times they think of their sources as like informants, snitches, which in and of itself sort of takes them down a level that's going to influence the nature of that dynamic between them and in a negative way. So we've had law enforcement types who have struggled with CIA's training because there's no badge and the gun is only, God forbid, somebody's about to shoot at you if you even have one. It's not home turf. You can't just, you know, walk on off and say, hey, I'm Bureau or whatever like that. Bad things can happen to you. And your security is as much in that agent's hand as that agent security in your hand. So you better treat them with some respect and not just think of them as a disposable snitch. So our work is all about, you know, hiding, right? Because we've got to hide that human dynamic. And you're putting a lot of faith in an agent who you know you can only trust to a point because, you know, it's not like a, an ODA, a special forces unit, where they're, they're brothers and sisters in arms, right? They might have to send each other into harm's way, but they know that they've got their back. Yeah, maybe my agent is going to be there for me. Maybe my agent's turned. And I don't know that until I get there. So as a CIA foreign intelligence collector, you know, it's all about dynamic adjustments to circumstances, manipulation, not force, right? Not flashing a badge, not like, you know, kung fu my way out of something, ideally talking my way out of something if I actually get into trouble, because it's not home field. It's, it's, it's foreign field. And I don't own that. Yeah. You know, there, there's so many other things to talk there about, you know, skills for conflict diffusing and, and, you know, lowering unhelpful negative emotions so that everybody gets out of this safely. I want to switch gears, though, because I, I think, so I was talking to, so I just gave one of your copies of books to, to a other intelligence officer. I said, this book is so good. You got to get this one. So I bought him a copy. He gave it to him yesterday. And, I, and he said, you know, are there things you're surprised in it? And I said, I think the things that are most surprising to me are the ways that, like, truth is stranger than fiction. You know, like, the you, you talk about the intelligence officer who used to come over and watch Ninja Turtles and stuff at your family with your yeah. kids. And this, like, yeah. I feel like you did such a good job of explaining that difference of, like, no, this is a partnership. This is a friendship. This is not me above them and they're this low-life informant. Right. You know, I feel like the book communicated that so well. But I was surprised to hear that you had them to your house. You know, like... Or, or like, I think one of my favorite ones is the guy who had to ask his wife permission. And, yeah. and you know, you talk about like, you know, you had to be very specific about how to pick him up in the car and, and, and you know, having the right hunker sight, but then also saying like, I don't want to stay here too long because we're, we're going to be safer on the move. And then we had to go back and get the wife so that she could approve. I mean, that has so many layers to it. But, but can, can you talk about this like, okay, the complications of being in a vehicle and the complications of like just completely out of left field, your agent <laughs> brings up an objection like, 
you, you know, you talked about sparring in the book. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, and the, the, the spar is, can we bring my wife in on this? You know, there's uncomfortable moments. It's, 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 it's human beings. And you can't always know for sure how people are going to react. So, you know, spying operations is really an experientially learned profession. Right? You teach tradecraft and we teach certain techniques and we try to take candidates, right? And, and we find natural traits they already have to try to be better. But how people react in certain circumstances, you think you know how they're going to react because, oh, I'm an expert on Chinese or Iranians and I've seen this a million times. You know, you don't know. You assess them as best you can and try to determine which way they're going to go when you get to this point in the road. And you try to predict so that you can spar with them if you have to. Like We talk about sparring at the recruitment pitch where you're actually sort of laying on the line, you know, what you're asking them to do, why you're asking them to do it, what's in it for them with them. And, you know, if you've done your job well, you've anticipated their objections to spar over, uh, which actually stands for, I think, like stop, pause, reflect, because you're not going, you're wrong, you'll be fine. Because, uh, you know, sometimes the objection is, I'm going to get killed. You don't say, ah, don't worry about it, no chance you're going to get killed, because that's a lie. You're going to tell them, you're going to, in understanding how they think, what's going to convince them that, yeah, there's a risk, but it's a risk of control. Please, so Jason. They reflect in that. Do you know the, do you know this book, uh, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss, former head of FBI hostage? I do, as okay. a matter of fact. Yes, so I've heard it, him speak. Is it similar to that, or like in sales, where you, you, you're taking a breath and you're repeating back to them what they said so they know that, so that they feel listened to and so that you've clarified? that what we're talking about before you go trying to answer objection, is that the reflect? Yeah, those are, those are very key blocks of it. So you want to validate that you've heard what they've said and that you're taking it seriously and you're not minimizing. So like in sales or having an argument with your partner, right? It's like, no, I never did that. Or I mean, you've, you've got to make them feel validated and taken seriously and, and reflecting the right emotions. So you're diffusing anger or whatever, but you're also very emotional and passionate because when you're trying to persuade someone to do something that's not necessarily great for them, you have to appeal to their motivations. It's always about their motivations, you know? So if you're selling, you know, why do you want to get into this Volvo? You know, what it is about it that they want about a Volvo, what, how that solves a problem in their life. And you have to keep going back to the motivations without dismissing their concerns. So that's the whole stopping and pausing and reflecting and responding in a way that doesn't dismiss, take seriously, but gives them an answer that makes them feel heard out and, and satisfied without ever that tinge of insincerity. It's like, oh, you don't have to worry about it, or that's not what I said, or, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I understand why you feel that way, and here's how we as a team, because it's always about team, are going to overcome this because it's worth doing. Because you couldn't look at yourself in the morning if you didn't do this. I feel like every, you know, we have a lot of founders of companies, CEOs here, and we have a lot of investment fund managers that listen to the show, and they're, they're constantly having to talk to big capital sources on put your money into our fund instead of that fund, right? And I feel like they all need to read your book because you talk about these ideas of like, <laughs> you're like, you know, you're repeating back you know, you're repeating back before you pitch them. You're like, 
you're reiterating all the things that they already said about you know being discontent with this and how they feel strongly about that and the, you know you're using their you're feeding their own their own words back from from even previous meetings you know and you're you're talking about the motivations and I can't remember which pitch it was but I think it was the one about the the guy who was so intelligent but had been sidelined by his organization because of his ethnic background and so people were actually getting yeah. promotions by stealing his work mm-hmm. and you were able to like right. You brought up that hot. T- you're like he was giving me like the no emotion look until I brought up the <laughs> I brought up that one aspect and I could see the look yeah. of like I had struck a chord of that is painful to have worked so hard and been so loyal and then be so disrespected by my own organization and like you got that emotional charge going and you know so I think everybody should go to Amazon.com right now and buy the recruiter purely for this story of the the husband. <laughs> who has to ask his wife permission to be a spy. And uh, we may as well spoil it. But she basically gets really mad at him of saying, why didn't you accept? Yeah. That's $1,000 a month for our family. What are you thinking? And then says, yeah. you know, Mr. Doug, we of course would love to work together with you. But a question I have about this is, you talked about, you know, I, I wanted to get to a hunker site so I could look him in the eye and have that more emotional resonance. And then I need to get on the road because it was safer. How do you make that decision of like when to pull over, when to be moving in, in that like, you know, unexpected fluid situation? What was going through your mind? You're following the emotion of the exchange. You, you're, you're sensing where it's going and, and it's not by chance. You've inserted, as you've said, phrases, things they've said before because you're leading them to a point. You're trying to get to that crossroads when you're going to pitch them. And, and that's got to be personal. It's got to be dynamic. And it's not easy to do. I know a lot of colleagues who really have trouble pulling the trigger, we say, just looking someone in the eye and asking them to spy. Um, getting there is all calculated. So you're moving the conversation through these emotional checkpoints, right? And you're checking, yes, they're responding that way. Right, I expect them to respond that way when I bring up the fight that they had with their boss. Yes, I expect them to respond that way when I talk about their kids' tuition because it's a private school, because the schools the government has are so poor, if only they had money for tuition. And I'm validating things, I call it public, well, we call it public pronouncements. They're public pronouncements because they're things they've already said to me reflecting a concern, an issue, a need that I am then, as you said, repeating back to them at a calculated time and place as I'm leading them to the point where the pitch is coming. And it's not just the pitch. It's, you know, an agent that's been around for five years and I'm re-recruiting them because you're always re-establishing that motivation. Is it still there? Making sure they're still on board, making sure that they're still inspired because a lot of it is, is inspiration. It's not, you know, just, just the money that goes into it. So the timing of when I turn and when I do my theatrical pause and reflection and look in their eye or looking down and looking back, that's all deliberately planned and rehearsed, but likewise totally dynamic because it has to shift based on what they do because people do funny things. Well, I got to say, like, you had me, like, that's a complete page-turner part of the book for me because you were totally having to, on the fly, go like, yeah, I, my, my chief of station is going to lose their mind that we're now bringing your wife into it with no prep. We haven't, I haven't previously warmed up this, this potential agent, but I guess we're going to go get her, and you're having to make that call on the spot. And, like, I mean, all those safety things have to occur all over again. Like, you don't, you don't know her. Yeah. You don't know how she's going to react. Right. Like, I'm guessing, like, right. I mean, even the safety things of getting in and out of the car, like, I'm just guessing, but, like, 
like you pro- like does, does he have to tell her like hey let's we got to have a screening for how we're getting in this car so we don't see her and like getting out and like it, like you've got to figure all that out real time like the the car almost i guess the car gives me anxiety of like it's just like this extra element of <laughs> the police and the potential accidents and the like what are you telling her what are you telling him to tell her about we're going to get in a car and go on a ride all, with this with happens. my american friend yeah. Well, the, the site is predetermined and it's been cased, right? So if they're at the right place, they're meeting you at a place that ideally has some screening. You have probably already, you know, having already agreed with him, I was like, okay, well, bring her here and have her, you know, I wanted them to, you know, be seated differently than they wound up being seated. So I had to adjust to that as well because he just went in the back seat with her. I didn't think it was going to be that way, but that's fine. So Because you, you wanted to look her in everything. the eyes? You wanted her in the front seat? Yes. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. But she got in the back. He went in the back with her. So if she went in the back, I at least wanted him in the front or one of them in the front. But that's fine because now I'm like the chauffeur and it's in a country where I was clearly a foreigner. They were not. And why was the foreigner driving the two nationals in the back seat like like an Uber cab? So a little weird. But, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of choice. And I had to decide... Well, at what point I was going to raise the most sensitive part of the conversation. I want to do that while we're stopped and I'm looking at them as opposed to like just driving along at, you know, 60 miles an hour going, by the way, right? Because you want that intimacy. You want that, that connection. And some cultures, remember, don't even look you in the eye. Sometimes their culture is that they naturally, out of respect, avert eyes or, or looking in the eye has another meaning. So You've got a lot of different things going. You've got to understand the people you're dealing with, but also the culture, the local the customs and such like that. And you have to sew all that in together. So you're refining everything you do with people based on all the differences that they have based on age, nationality, ethnicity, you know, and experience. And, and you know, you described this point where you're like, Man, I had basically not finished pitching her, but I'm worried we've been at the hunker too long. I need to get back on the road. Is it because being parked is more suspicious or being parked is more likely for somebody to come across you? And so you're like, oh, even though I'm not quite done the pitch, I'm going to get on the road. Is that what's going through your mind? Yeah, both. One, often, you know, being parked, depending on where you're parked, stands out as opposed to moving on a, you know, a car moving on a road is a car moving on a road. A car parked Okay, if you're parked on the street with other parked cars, but there are people in this car, that looks funny, right? If you're like, I mean, one of the most fascinating things you want to do is just go to, you know, a Target or a grocery store and just spend 15 minutes in your car in the parking lot. The amazing and weird things that happen, and these are just normal people. These aren't spies. You might think they're spies or criminals (laughs) because people do really weird things in parking lots. So think how that looks to the police, to a passer, even an innocent passerby, they might think, well, these are people casing my house to rob it, particularly in some dangerous areas, right? So they see a car with a bunch of people, particularly if the engine's running, they're calling the absolutely, they're calling the cops. So you don't want to hunker for too long. You want to keep moving. So you're balancing what I want to accomplish with all the counterintelligence and, and security considerations at the same time. And a lot of it is just feel, you know? This no longer feels good, right? This this area, all of a sudden, I see two more people walking their dog, or that old lady took a real funny side-eye look at me. 
I'm getting out of here because I just, you know, my spidey senses start to tingle. And I'm guessing that preparation, you're like, okay, I think I'm going to go here next. Or you're, you, you know, you. So another one of my favorite stories in the book is the older, kind of more erudite gentleman who. <laughs> you guys are driving around and you end up getting chased by by the counter surveillance team, a hostile hostile yeah. organization. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's he's commentating on being annoyed at how bad his country is at catching him. And I mean, it seemed like are you like almost just ru- constantly running a surveillance detection route the whole time you're driving with your agent? You are. You're always running a surveillance detection route because you're black to the meeting, but you don't know if you're still black, the next step, the next block. So whether you're walking or driving or whatever you're doing, you're constantly incorporating and looking for surveillance, incorporating movements. You've planned everything out. You know where you're going to walk. You know where you're going to drive so that you can continue to look for surveillance. So, yeah, this guy, one of the most interesting folks I ever worked with, and he was a, you know just a very classy gentleman of the old world without revealing too much of where this was. He was a very senior officer official in his security service. So he was an intel officer himself and dealt with counterespionage and, and all of that. And I recruited him, let us say, non-officially. So he didn't think he was working for the U.S. government. I mean, he figured it out over time, but he never wanted to be slapped in the face with it because it made him feel better. But he thought I was a non-official Westerner. I won't even, in fact, Westerners as far as I can go in terms of how it was. So he thought he was consulting, but that included giving me secret documents and all that kind of stuff to give my commercial interest a competitive advantage. So this this one night that we actually had met at a safe house and safe houses are not quite probably what people think about. They, they've got to be just a, a normal place that has a life to itself, but that you can use on occasion because it's not just like an empty place because empty places are not safe houses because people go, why is that house empty all the time? Why do different people come like once a week, once a month? So it was a safe house that also wasn't associated with any government entity and had my meeting there. It was on a compound uh, where it would make sense for someone of of my complexion to be seen, but also someone like him uh, because well-to-do people from that country live there as well as foreigners. And surveillance set up what we call a static choke point because they looked at all the foreigners, right? Because any foreigner could be a spy to them. And they kept an eye on different compounds and, you know, my luck, right? They had a, a static surveillance vehicle watching the compound, just thought something funny about this car coming out with just, you know, me, a passenger, because he was low. He's supposed to be out of sight. So without detail, was not visible through the, the rear window. But it just looked funny because who's leaving, especially in this country, there was a lot of crime. Who's leaving at this time of the morning? So a lot of times, because surveillance are not well paid, you're hoping they're just sleeping and not going to bother. But I had a very, you know, hard charging team and they followed me. And I knew it right away, even without having to go into my, because they were pretty obvious. They just, you know, there was just me and them and the only two cars. And they, you know, rumbled their way onto the street. And I was like, ooh, so it's like, ooh, this is, this is not good. So you don't try to do Jason Bourne stuff. You don't try to lose surveillance. So we had a protocol. We had, an, you know, the station did for how to handle something like this. And it was essentially to get him back to the compound because it's not likely they're going to be kicking down the door of the safe house because 
that's bad press for them with the foreigners and stuff like that. They'll probably just wait us out. And we had a way that we would get him off compound. But as I told you in your audience earlier, he was one of these guys who was so senior, he could only be away for a small amount of time. Even his wife didn't know that he was spying or doing what he was doing. So I tried to convince him to let me take him back and we'll get him off safely. And he was like, you know, can't do it, can't be done, whatever. So, you know, my heart's racing a, a million beats because here's, you know, a yeah, I, lo- I loved his line about like, oh, I trust you, you'll get it done because it needs to happen now, basically. Right. I mean, <laughs> you're and, like, I, I don't trust you. Know, <laughs> wow. You know, just the amount of confidence he had in me. He's like, you'll take care of it, like very nonchalantly. And he was a supremely confident guy. And I guess you, you get to be that senior, but. I would have been scared to, you know, really scared to death if it was him because I've got like the divisions in my mind. You see newspaper headlines and, you know, me being carried off in chains and this guy up against the wall just flashed through my head. And I know that my chief of station is going to just have my neck for all this. But I thought the agent said he can't go back. He said he's got to get out of this. Take care of it. Which speaks so, to the idea of like a partner instead of a lowly informant. Yeah. Where you exactly really right. care about I him and what he needs. order him. Right. I couldn't tell him, here's what we're doing. My COS, my chief station, would have preferred I told him that. They said, we're going back. And maybe I could have because it's not like he's going to do a stunt roll out of the car. Or maybe he would have actually this guy. But I got out of Dodge. But as I'm racing to the streets of the city and I'm, um, can, and can I'm you, in Can you talk a, about uh, that for one second, mm-hmm. actually? Sure. What was that decision tree of, you know, being the gray man, let them follow me around and there's, but I don't want to be anything interesting to the point where you're like, actually this, the, you know, this just tipped. I got to lose these guys or I got to. Right. So this ship has sailed. So this guy's, is, the team's on me and I know the protocol. I know what they're going to do. So they're not going to just avail you with one car. They're going to start vectoring other teams. Box you and in around it or it's something. Their, Right. And their city, it's their city. So I'm not in a diplomatic vehicle. I don't have any protections. They've got no reason not to stop me. So at any point, they could throw a stop, a checkpoint, pull me over, and then we're all done here. So it was very quickly that I've got to get away and get away quick before they stop me, uh, before they pull teams ahead. And I know they got communications ahead and they could they could do that. And I, and I, I know what the evolution is going to be because I know my adversary. And I'm also not in, let's say, a high-powered car because I'm in a very sort of local, slow car without too many revealing details. Well, something that uh, blends in. With standard blend, and it certainly did. It, it blended in. So I'm wheeling around the, the streets and trying to literally get black and, and, and get away from sight, at least long enough for him to get to the car. All I got to do is get him out of the car. If they stop me or whatever, I'll get a speeding ticket, maybe reckless driving, whatever. There were some complications because I wasn't who I really was in that country. I was somebody else. So the worst case is I'm going home, right? They'll beat me up. They'll throw me in jail for a few days. Then they'll put me on an airplane. You know, I can live with that. But I need to find a gap. There has to be a gap in their observation of me that I could get him out of the car long enough that they don't see him getting out of the car and they keep chasing me and not him. So as I'm doing this and trying to think through it, and there's like no GPS, and I'm not like, you know, don't have Google map person telling me where to go, which you wouldn't use anyway, because think about it, that's a tracking device. If you're using GPS, GPS is watching you. 
So it's all area knowledge. And I'm trying to decide where I'm going to go, where I might get a, a an opportunity for a gap and get him out of the car. And I start hearing him talking. And I thought at first, you know, and I'm really tense, right? So you know how you get tunnel vision in a moment like this? Kind of get tunnel hearing. My wife tells me all the time, I, you know, it's not my heart of hearing. I just don't hear her. I'm not listening to her. But I just, I heard his voice and I thought he was telling me something or that I had to do something. But he's mumbling about the surveillance and he's doing like like a teacher. He's doing a critique on their skill level that they're giving me too much room. They didn't take the turn fast enough. They're doing this. And I'm like, what? Oh, my, you know, various curse words are going through my head right now. I didn't say anything to him. But I'm like, he's seriously critiquing these people who are going to kill him. And I was just like shocked. And, and he's a very old world guy, very articulate sort of old school colonial version of English. Yes. So his words are just beautiful that, you know, <laughs> I was like, stop it. So it was, it was an entertaining evening and he never panicked. I'm, and I never showed panic, but I was panicking on the inside. I was totally panicking, but not on the outside and not can, know what I was doing. Can I ask you about that for one Please. second, actually? Yeah. What do you tell yourself or how do you override those natural inclinations toward panic? What's your trick for overriding that and staying calm? Or what do you tell just yourself? Channel or? It. I just channel it into energy, really. I just, when things like that happen, when a scary moment is coming on, I usually will charge towards it in a sense of just channeling myself towards it and, and channeling those, those feelings, not letting them obstruct me. So it's like, okay, here's how I'm going to take this turn. And here's what I'm going to do. So, you know, a case officer's natural inclination is to try to be multiple steps ahead of any event because you're trying to anticipate and and deflect and what have you, whatever threats might come towards you. Because again, we're not about fighting the threat. And in this case, I was doing the opposite. I was trying to lose surveillance as opposed to you know, kind of go into the shadows. So it's about, okay, where am I turning next? What am I going to do? And I'm visualizing in my head these several steps ahead. And Okay. Sorry about the tangent. Let's go back. Did you already have a sense of where the gap was going to be and you were trying to get to it? Or were you spotting... Were you, were you scanning, is that going to be a gap? Is that going to be a gap? I had potentials. Okay. So I had an idea of where I was going to, uh, to use. And then I had to make sure that they would work because the gap required a certain distance between me and them where I knew I was out of observation, but also out of earshot. But also I don't have a nosy neighbor or somebody looking. So all those things are coming into my focus. So... I thought about different places, but I had to sort of size them up at the time. Is this going to work now? Is this not going to work now? Based on their distance, based on was anybody on the street, were the lights on in windows, all those kind of dynamics going on at the same time. Yeah. Well, I have so many more questions. We're just going to have to have you back on the show. We're going to have to do this again because it's so fun. Sounds like fun. Maybe, maybe a final one. I was fascinated with the story, and I think it shows your humility to put it in. The story where you talked about the agent, things were iffy, and they, they, they missed the appointed meeting time, and so you went for the variant. You know, you talked about, like, hey, we had this prearranged thing of, like, so we don't have to call each other and reschedule. It's like, we'll come back to the same place in an hour and come back to the same place, same time in a week, and these kind of things. Can you talk about what's going through your head and, and why it's so important to have the variant where you don't have to make a phone call? So you want to stay off the grid, right? So you don't want to have to, God forbid, call your agent or do anything electronic and email anything digital because... Those things are forever. Phone calls, the internet, it's forever. It's out there. There's evidence out there connecting the two of you, and that's what you're trying to avoid. So you have a communications plan 
which is like lay down steps. While your audience should definitely get my book, they might also get books like The Billion Dollar Spy, which is a story about Adolf Tokachev, who was a famous agent we ran in, in Moscow, or The Secret Life about a famous Polish agent. And it, it'll offer you some ideas that this agent had like the next 10 meeting venues already laid out so that they would be no worried about having to otherwise come in contact with the agent in any way, shape, or form. It's all pre-planned. So in this case, the agent had that. He was kind of a new agent, but a, an agent who posed a potential physical security threat because uh, tough life for this, this poor chap. This agent was a member of the counterintelligence service, but was also associated with the terrorist group that the counterintelligence service was fighting, which is why the CI service wanted him and which is why the terrorists wanted him, because both groups wanted him to work against the other. We tried to vet him, and part of the vetting was, in this case, it was a lie detector test, a polygraph, which he blew. <laughs> and he blew to the question of, he was who he claimed to be, but he, he blew to the question of, did he intend to do me any harm? I met him anyway. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> polygraphs are instruments, right? They're tools, Imprecise. they're not lie detectors. And they tell you something was on this guy's mind. They don't tell you what. They're not mind readers. So with the empirical evidence I had otherwise, and because of the value this agent provided to us, I got my boss to sign on, headquarters, not too happy, but they signed on. So we took all these security protocols, and it was one of the times where I actually had a team of people, two cars, with just one person in it, to provide counter surveillance, being that... They were there to see, did he bring any other bad guys with him? Did he bring anybody with him? Was he alone? Was he there? They would tell me he was there before I had to go into the site, which itself meant to be concealed, also had some physical dangers of an ambush. So, you know, we had our plan. We had our schedule. He wasn't there. We had our variant. He wasn't there. I was then supposed to come back to what we call an alternate, which would be another date another time, and actually another location, just in case he couldn't be there because there was a problem with the place. You know, his brother-in-law lives there, whatever. Who the hell knows? But I so kept thinking, all right, this is probably my fault, right? Because we communicated in a foreign language. So maybe I got the date wrong. Maybe he misunderstood the time. That's right. He's coming back at this time. So I sent my counter-surveillance home because that was the protocol. And I was supposed to go as well. But I stayed, made that extra variant, came into the site, and the site was a very dark, very narrow road. This country was in the middle of, I think it's fair to say, a civil war at the time between the terrorist group and this guy. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because I had cased this place, never saw a house. This was just a little connecting road between two areas in this town. All I see is a car turning to block the road that was in front of me. And it's rare to see cars at this time of night anyway. And this car is blocking to, to turning to block the road. It's like, oh my God, it's an ambush. Because that's how you train. You train for a T, right? That they're going to block you from behind and block you, block you from front and behind. And they teach you how to ram cars and shoot through things and all that kind of good stuff. So, you know, the training kicks in. So I start preparing because there's a formula to where you want to hit the car and what part of it? Where is the weight of the car? Where is the weight of your car? Where's the kinetic energy? And then what are you going to do afterwards? Because it's like, ta-ha, I made it past them. Yeah, but they're still chasing you. So what are you going to do then? So all that flashes in my mind. And then just as I'm getting ready and I'm coming in, I'm going to ram the car because there was also a car behind me, which is why I thought it was definitely an ambush. 
I just see this like little old guy just kind of barely fall out of the car. He's maybe, you know, four foot five or something like that. And there was actually a driveway. He had a little farm off the side of the road. So I was like, you know, seconds away from <clears throat> plowing into this poor unsuspecting farmer. And luckily, you know, I sort of evolved quick enough that I was out sat on my car and everything was fine. But let's say it wasn't one of my best moments. I should have gone home. That was the protocol. But if you're a if you're a case officer, you never lie to your own team. You never manipulate. You never trick. You've got to be totally upfront. So I told my boss. I got teased. I got chided. I got kind of like you know made fun of. But okay, you effed up. Next time, follow the protocol. That's why we had the process. That's so awesome. Okay. We for sure need to have you back on the show, but where are the best places to buy the book, connect with you on social, websites, any of that? So Amazon has them. You certainly get them there. Target has them. Barnes and Nobles, bookstores have them. I don't know what, what is coming out next is the paperback. So the paperback is out on September 6th. So the paperback should be all at your local stores as well as online from all the the noble sellers. Amazon still has hard copies, though, if you want to get uh, that, but they should be available everywhere, particularly come September 6th when the paperback's out. But you can pre order now. And audible.com, where I bought mine. Audible and Kindle and Barnes and Noble's e readers, they're all available that way. And the Audible narrator sounds so much better than me. So you should definitely get the, uh, the audio version and listen to him because he sounds like a spy. He sounds really cool, but that's available now. And are you doing some consulting as well or mostly just the writing and teaching? Mostly writing and teaching. I do, I do a little consulting from time to time. It's usually for worthy causes, but I spend most of my time teaching. I teach a course at Georgetown each semester on Intel Studies for graduate students. And I also work with some individual mentors and do some coaching as well. But I also write for various publications. Occasionally, Foreign Affairs will will stick me into their pages or just security, or even sometimes I'm really lucky I get into a major media platform. Wow, how exciting. Well, listen, I appreciate you, all the stuff you did to try and make our country safer and the, the things your family had to put up with for you to live a life like this. And even though I know you think it was a lot of fun, I know you made a lot of sacrifices that make it so I can raise my family the way that I want to. So appreciate it for that. Thank you, Jess. It's my pleasure to serve. Thanks for making time for this. Appreciate it. Bye now.